I'm Avery Smith of the Rock Candy Podcast Network, and you're listening to Blessed Are the Binary Breakers, a multi-faith podcast of transgender stories. Hey again, all. To my Jewish listeners, Chag Sameach, may you have a happy and holy Passover. And to my Christian listeners, have a blessed Holy Week and a happy Easter. On that topic, I want to take a moment to emphasize to my fellow Christians how important it is for us to confront the anti-Semitism that is so tangled up in how we observe Jesus' passion. As Amy Jill Levine, a Jewish woman who teaches New Testament studies, writes, Jesus of Nazareth, charged by the Roman authorities with sedition, dies on a Roman cross. But Jews, the collective, all Jews, become known as Christ killers. Still haunting, the legacy of that charge becomes acute during Holy Week when pastors and priests who speak about the death of Jesus have to talk about the Jews. Every year, the same difficulty surfaces. How can a gospel of love be proclaimed if that same gospel is heard to promote hatred of Jesus' own people? If you're interested in learning more about this issue and how to actually deal with it, I highly recommend Levine's article, Holy Week and the Hatred of the Jews, How to Avoid Anti-Semitism This Easter, which I'll link in the show notes and in the episode transcript. In this article, Levine shares some history and context behind anti-Jewish language in the Gospels, describes how interfaith conversations help with moving the relationship between Christianity and Judaism towards something more positive, and explores and ranks the six strategies that Levine has seen people use when trying to resolve these problems with the New Testament. Another great resource is Levine's short book, Entering into the Passion of Jesus, which can help Christians reimagine the stories we read during Holy Week in ways that don't do harm to our Jewish neighbors. So yeah, I just wanted to bring up that timely topic, Now let's move on to the focus of today's episode, queerness and art. I appreciate art, particularly textile art, from an amateur sort of perspective. So I had a great time learning from Neville, who both studies and creates their own art. Neville will provide a more in-depth introduction to themselves in a moment, but to let you know what you're about to be listening to. In our conversation, Neville and I talk about their own life, learning to love being both Catholic and queer, and learning to stand up for themselves and other queer persons. Then we discussed his own art pieces, and the way feminist and queer artists have made use of textile arts. And finally, Neville took me on a tour of European art's renaissance period, focusing on queer artists who navigated adhering to and subverting the rules that came about for Catholic art in that era. It is all so fun and so cool, 
And it also really made me think about the way that rules and norms around anything come about. Without further ado, let's let Neville introduce themselves right after you hear from another podcast on the Rock Candy Network. Hey, I'm Andrew. And I'm John. Our show, Magnified Pod, is the only podcast that discusses culture, religion, politics, and deep dives into the discographies of the bands that shaped a generation of 90s youth group kids. We share our thoughts on the Christian bookstore alternate universe scene we grew up in, our changing religious views, and the alternative music that formed us, going through albums track by track. We've also interviewed band members, producers, filmmakers, and artists, and had fascinating, profound, and silly conversations along the way. Check out Magnified Pod on the Rock Candy Podcast Network and wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Neville. I use he, she, and they pronouns. I'm 21 and I live in Australia. Uh, not in Sydney or Melbourne. I'm on the other side. And I'm an art historian and an artist. I'm actually just finishing my bachelor's. I was meant to finish this week, but lockdown meant I couldn't. So I have like another two weeks of my bachelor's left. And then I'll go into my honors in art history, which I'm super excited about. Heck yes. Oh, I feel that. I miss academia. I've been thinking of going back, so. It's addicting. If it only just didn't cost so much. Oh, yeah, I feel that too. <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm so excited to get into art stuff. But before we dive into that, I think kind of starting with just uh, to get a little more groundwork for you, mm-hmm. um, your sort of experiences with faith and gender, like growing up. Yeah, that's probably a good place to start. Um, so I'm Catholic. I've been raised Catholic. My whole family is pretty Catholic. I went to a Catholic primary school. Um, Catholic high school, and I did, we don't call it Sunday school, but I did the equivalent of Sunday school. I even like used to be a volunteer for it throughout primary mm. school and high school, so very heavily like involved in the faith, pretty much as involved as you could be at my age. Mm-hmm. And my mom is actually a religion teacher of sorts as well, so. Cool. I, like, she teaches uh, sacraments, what well, she used to, but she did sacrament coordination. Mm-hmm. So I knew so much and I loved it so, so much. Um, and I also, you know, started to realize I was queer throughout that time at the same time and realizing you're queer in a Catholic education system um, was, you know, a difficult time, but also really interesting, really helped me figure out who I was at a very young age. Because um, like, you know, the signs are there as a young queer kid. Yeah, the the signs are there even if you don't realize them. Mm-hmm. Um, like I did a lot of drama, and I remember being in a play where the role was meant for a boy, and the teacher was like, "Hey, um, did you want to be the boy version of the character or the girl version?" I was like, "No, I want to wear the mustache. I want to be the boy version." Yes, <laughs> and I did it. I I had the mustache. I had the top hat. I don't remember what the character was. I just remember wanting to do it so much. Mm. But of course, I didn't realize I was way too young at that point. Mm-hmm. And I just, you know, I continued to explore both sides of myself, being Catholic and queer the whole way through high school um, until I actually found your blog in high school. Oh, oh wow. The, your Tumblr <laughs> blog uh-huh. um, when I was, I think, like 15 or 16, mm-hmm. um, I found Clearly Christian. And I was like, oh my goodness. I can be both. This is an option for me. Like mm. you can be queer and you can be Christian and not have to sacrifice one or the other. Mm. That was a kind of revolutionary moment in my little journey, um, along with yelling at my teacher because oh. 
um, we had religion classes were required the whole way through primary and high school. So you have to have an hour every single day of religious education. Mm. Um, and it was very much, this is the scripture, this is the catechism and wrote learning it. There wasn't mm, a chance yeah. for much discussion or debate or exploration, which is such a shame because that's some of the best bits yes. is, you know, to really talk about it. Yeah. But I was in high school uh, at the same time as the same-sex marriage debates were happening um, because in Australia they happened a little bit differently. They were like 2016, 2017. Okay. And so we would have debates in class about that. Oh, while you're just sitting there like, oh. Yeah. Well, I didn't sit there. I got in trouble because I told my teacher that what he was teaching wasn't actually in the Bible. And that wasn't actually, that was a mistranslation. And, you know, I went into that whole debate about you're using your prejudice, but you're teaching it like it's fact. But I've read the Bible. I've read the scripture and that's not what it says. Nice. And he did not like that. Yeah. Um, but it was very fun to tell him that to his face. I mean, good on you. That takes a lot of courage to do, <laughs> especially in high school. Oh my gosh. Oh, I was furious in that class. I got, I got in a lot of trouble. Well, I, they weren't too, like, they really didn't want what to do with me. Cause they're like, this is this good little Catholic kid oh. saying not traditionally Catholic things. So they didn't know what to do mm. with me, but they, they didn't like me after that. I wasn't the good oh. little Catholic kid after that. Oh no. <laughs> Can I ask what your classmates, like, what their response to? They were very, like, confused at first because their perception of me was this good, quiet little Catholic kid. Right. Who, you know, doesn't say boo. Yeah. <laughs> who knows all the things. They just assumed that I had learned it by heart and, yeah. you know, followed all the rules. But when I didn't. I think it confused them a lot. Yeah. Um, but I know that there was there was other queer kids in that class that I knew about. Yeah. Because we couldn't come out at school. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it wasn't a thing that we could safely do then. But, you know, we knew each other. And so I remember thinking, if I don't say anything, then all of these kids are going to think that's what Scripture says, that, that that's actually fact. Yeah. And I remember thinking that I can't let these people go out thinking that that is fact and that that's what God thinks of them or that that's what the church thinks about them. Yeah. And one of them who was my good friend at the time actually like kind of gave me a reassuring hand pat in class because I was oh. really, I was like gripping the desk. I was so mad at that teacher. Yeah. Um, but we became like good friend outside of class because of it. You know, we talked about how like that was terrible and you know, we were sick of school and things like that. Yeah. But I think it was, it was a good turning point in school. Again, that takes so much courage, but that's beautiful that like through that, just being able to help others who are going through the same thing as you and being able to speak out when they might not have the courage yet or not have the knowledge or be able to articulate it, that you were there to do that is oh, really cool. Thank you. It, it was really awesome. But it came about from your blog because if <laughs> I didn't know that that was the mistranslation, right. I wouldn't have told the teacher that because I thought that's what it meant. Yeah. Because that was what I had been taught. Yeah. Because, you know, there's, there's definitely a Catholic thing of not questioning or not, mm -hmm. you know, trying to dissect catechism and scripture so much. Yeah. You kind of, you hear what's on the paper, you read what's on the paper, and you kind of are meant to accept it. Right. Once you start dissecting it, it opens up a whole new world of translations and interpretations that I think is really awesome and I love it mm -hmm. so in high school I know like you had realized you were queer was it sexuality and gender stuff 
did the gender stuff come later? Um, I realized pretty quickly that I wasn't straight. I think I knew from about 14. Okay. But I had, I had this thing of like, maybe I can be like straight passing. Cause I knew that I liked guys mm-hmm. and girls. I didn't know about non-binary being a thing at that point in time. Um, but I was like, well, I like guys, so it's not a problem. I can just yeah. date guys. So it's, it, it's not going to be a problem, you know? Right. Um, and then I met my partner and I was like, oh, this isn't hypothetical anymore. <laughs> yeah. Oh. It's not a hypothetical attraction to women. This is, this is an actual thing now. Mm-hmm. Um, so that went downhill very quickly. Um, cause I was still in high school when I met my partner. And so, mm-hmm. um, I realized very quickly by the time I graduated that like, no, no, I'm, I'm full on queer. Like this is definitely a thing. Yeah. Um, but with gender, it was a lot of a, a slower process because all the signs were there for a lot earlier on than realizing I was queer in my sexuality. Mm. Like the signs of not being cisgender were there. I just didn't know what they were at that age. Like right. knowing that I really liked wearing men's clothing or that I really like having my hair short and things mm-hmm. or that I didn't like super feminine things. But I found gender fluid. I think I was 16. Okay. So a little after the sexuality, I found that term. And I was like, well, I guess. I mean, but h- hypothetical. That's just a right. hypothetical <laughs> term. You know, mm. I I could hypothetically be fluid, you know, but maybe I'm just a girl who really likes wearing men's clothing, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. <laughs> Again, the signs were there, but I didn't realize what they were until I got to uni and I met actual trans people and non-binary people for the first time who were, like, confident in themselves. They used their pronouns and everyone did. Oh. And I was like, what is this? Like, you guys aren't making it hypothetical. This is real. Mm-hmm. It's not just this hypothetical word that I've heard about on the internet or that I've seen other people do, but, like, no one that I knew. Right. So meeting people for the first time in uni just completely shattered yeah. <laughs> the idea that this was hypothetical. This is just a thing I could pretend in my head but didn't have to be real. Yeah. Um, yeah, queer spaces in uni, they really are the way to go to find your people. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> like, meeting other non-binary people and being like, oh, I can vibe with these people. <laughs> They're saying things that really relate to me. Yeah. I think they knew before I did, to be honest. Because, like, <laughs> I think it's because they were, like, older than me and they were more confident in themselves. They mm-hmm. could tell what I hadn't yet realized. Because, mm. like, I remember we had... I think there was a dinner dance. There was some function where we were all dressed up and there was a whole group of us. Um, and it wasn't technically a queer space. It was just a nerdy space that happened to be really queer, like a lot of them are. Yeah. Um, and so we all had name badges that had our pronouns on them. And someone said, hey, what pronouns do you want? And this is when I was still going by my old name. And I was like, ah, oh, get all of them. <laughs> and they're like, <laughs> can, I, can I just put them all on there? <laughs> yeah, I was like, wait, you mean I have to, pick i mean i mean i don't i don't really care you know it's, <laughs> i'm one of those cool people who doesn't care what pronouns people use to me not realizing yeah completely missing that at all mm. um or when because my first name is really common people started calling me by my last name and i was like huh mm. i like this but it's just because i have a common first name you know <laughs> there's no reason why i like going by my last name just to avoid confusion mm-hmm. so, but i think you know some of my friends actually thought i was just straight up trans and in denial about it mm-hmm. because I just kept doing things like that, which would have been so obvious from the outside, but from the inside, I just didn't realize. 
mm-hmm. quite what was going on until much, much more recently. Mm-hmm. So I didn't actually like properly come out as gender fluid until a few months ago. Oh, okay. Well, congrats. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> thank you. I never actually fully came out to my friends. I just like slowly let them know more and more things. But I came out to my immediate family just before Christmas. Mm. And I'm actually hoping to use this podcast to come out to the rest of the family because they know I'm doing this and they asked if they could listen. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Yeah, they all want to listen to the episode. And I was like, well, if there's one way to tell them all how I identify at once, this would be it. So I am gender fluid. And happy about that. Hello, Neville's <laughs> family. <laughs> yes. Be cool about it. <laughs> Please be cool about it. <laughs> yeah. They're lovely people, though. I'm sure they will. They're very mm. nice. Awesome. So is Neville your last name, or is that a name you've gotten elsewhere? So Neville is actually my last name. Okay. So I suppose that's like a segue into the fact that I have two names. Mm-hmm. Um, I have my first name, which is Amy, and it's I don't consider it a dead name. It's just my first name. Okay. And I have my last name, which is Neville. Mm-hmm. And most people call me Neville. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't have a problem with Amy. It just doesn't feel like the right name for me. Mm-hmm. It's just too feminine, and Neville just feels cooler. <laughs> and it's more endogenous and masculine, and I just like it better. And also, I can get nicknames. I get the best nicknames out of Neville. Uh, like, the current nickname that my friends call me is Neville Egg, which I think is amazing. That is amazing. Yeah, there's not as much to work with with Amy. <laughs> exactly, there's not. So Neville just, it just fits right. Yeah. The only downside is that it's also the name of like half of my family. Right, right. <laughs> so even though they're fully supportive, they're just like, but we're all Nevilles. And I'm like, on the one hand, <laughs> yes, we're all Nevilles together. On the other hand, I do see your point there. Yeah. <laughs> so hence all of the nicknames. It's like you can call me the mm. nickname version if that makes it easier. Yes, yeah. So as you've been going through university and all that, do you want to talk more about um, how your faith has been developing as well? Yeah. So I came out of high school being like a really proud Catholic mm-hmm. and queer person, but I, I still was you know, new to the queer thing. Mm-hmm. So when I got to uni and I started making art, I was like, well, this is the perfect thing to make art about, about being Catholic and queer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I made a lot of art about it because I think I mentioned earlier that the same-sex marriage debates happened right as I was finishing high school. Right. And so they were still like a very recent thing when I was in uni. Um, but the difference was I could talk about it now because when I was in Catholic high school, you know, I couldn't make an art piece about that. Right. That wouldn't have been an acceptable thing. But when I was in uni, I could make an art piece about it. So I was really like having a great time exploring the artistic side of Catholicism, which is, you know, my favorite part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other side of things, I was exploring my queer identity and becoming a part of queer groups and things. Mm-hmm. But I realized pretty quickly that those things weren't seen as compatible in uni, uh, which yeah. was really surprising to me mm-hmm. at first, because it's like, isn't uni meant to be the really liberal place where you get all these fun new liberal ideas and you meet new people? But I actually got far more hate for being Catholic mm. than I ever did for being queer. Yeah. And I thought that was, that was, I was not expecting that. Like I was expecting that I wouldn't be able to come out in uni, mm-hmm. um, but I would go join all the Catholic clubs. But the, actually the opposite happened mm-hmm. was I didn't feel safe to join the Catholic clubs because my queer friends, um, some of who I'm no longer friends with, I didn't feel safe to join. Um, 
because a lot of those groups were like really intensely anti-Catholic, yeah. like anti-Catholic specifically, um, because I don't know like how you're aware of how much you're aware of like the religious scene in Australia. Not very. But Catholicism is a very it's a very dominant religion here. Okay. Um, it, particularly in Western Australia, which is where I live, Catholicism is pretty much the dominant religion by a huge margin. Okay. So when like the same-sex marriage debates and things were happening, it was seen as a Catholic thing, more so than a general Christian thing. Mm. So when people think of the Catholic Church, that's what they associated it with. Yeah. And I remember thinking, well, I completely understand why you guys think that, because yeah. I'm queer too. And they're like, well, no, but you're Catholic, so that means you support it. It's like, no. Oh, no. No, I don't. Yeah, it means you resist it. Yeah, I, I resisted it from the inside, but they didn't see it that way. Um, and so I had to like back away from some of those groups from a little bit because I was yeah. like, I don't, I never thought I'd have to hide that part of my identity. You know, I didn't yeah. think that that was the part that I was going to have to hide or not talk about with certain people, but it was. Yeah. And it is like, there has to be some balance between respecting that that's traumatic for them and respecting that for you, it's a big part of your life. Yeah. And I would, I try to explain it to them like, I'm Catholic in the spiritual sense, but that doesn't mean I agree to everything that the church or the institution says. Like they're right. they're kind of two separate things. Yeah. You've got the Catholic spirituality and then the Catholic church. Mm-hmm. And there definitely is a disconnect between them. Or you can you know, agree with one, but not necessarily the other. Yeah. But I found, particularly this year, I actually finally found some actual queer Christians. Yay. Like, actual in the wild existing <laughs> queer Christians. And I was like, this is, I didn't know you guys existed in my country. Yes. I didn't know this was a thing. Uh-huh. And, like, they were, they were wonderful. They actually told me that there exists a queer Christian church in my city. It's not a Catholic church, but it's a Christian church. Oh, that's so exciting. And I was like, this this has been here the whole time? Why, why, why didn't I get the memo? Like, come on, guys. <laughs> exactly. No one, t- no one told me. It's actually so annoying because it's really close and accessible to where I am. And I'm like, <laughs> guys, how did I not know this existed? Yeah. But they, like, the people that I've finally met now, as I'm, you know, finishing up my bachelor's and starting to find, like, more groups of people outside of my immediate uni group of friends. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, like, very diverse spiritual group of people. And most of them are also queer. And it's just amazing to meet, yeah. like, other queer spiritual people mm-hmm. and talk about religion with them and just have a great time while doing it. And we're all, they're so respectful and things like that. You don't get any of that kind of stuff that I was getting my previous groups. It's just... yeah. You know, finally coming out this year has been so much of a good time. I've had yeah. a great time with religion this year, I think, more than the last couple of years. Yeah. Oh, that makes me so happy that you have been <laughs> able to find a group where you can, yeah, bring your whole self in. I know in your email you mentioned something about just the joy of getting to talk about your religion with people outside it. Is that one of the spaces where that's been possible for you? Yeah. I have a couple of friends that I found through my historical things mm-hmm. who are wonderful people. And they've actually lent me some books of affirmations that are queer Christian affirmations. Aww. And they even found a trans specific one that they lent to me. And I was like, this is so beautiful. That's so sweet. So I've had a great time with that. And with my partner, we talk about religion a lot mm-hmm. um, because she's Lutheran and I'm Catholic. So naturally, there's a lot to discuss there. There's a lot to dissect. Right. As an artist, I found another space where 
because I was doing Catholic art, I would talk about it a lot because you have to when you're doing an arts degree, you have to talk sometimes for really long periods of time just about <laughs> your artwork and what you're making and all the ideas behind it. Right. And I had a few people who came up to me after class and were like, hey, I'm, I'm really interested in that point you're making about the saints. Like, I didn't know that about the saints and things. And I'm like, oh, you want to talk about the saints? I'm so down to tell you all the nitty gritty <laughs> about saintly relics because it was about you know, relics and reliquaries. So I think that's Ooh. so cool. Um, and we ended up crashing in a studio room there were like 13 of us i think mm-hmm. some of varying religions some were atheists some were agnostic mm-hmm. like just a, a very diverse group mm-hmm. of spiritualities and things just talking about how we personally practice spirituality or what we do and how we relate that to religion and some people were like responding to my work directly and some people were just talking in more general terms mm-hmm. and it was amazing we were there for like two hours just crashing on the floor of an art studio space yeah which is where all the best conversation happens <laughs> like late at night yeah on the floor of a studio you know with our half-finished art projects everywhere it's the best place to have a conversation with people oh that's like exactly the kind of conversation that just brings me so much like energy for the rest of the week because you get to share what you're passionate about you get to learn what other people are passionate about and often kind of take some of what they say and like use it to fuel your own faith and it's just oh I need the pandemic to be over so I can find those pe- those kinds of people <laughs> I know I I miss it and I want to go out I mean I've only been in lockdown for a week now but it's still like I want to go out and talk to my people again yes yeah but yeah do you want to talk a little more about any of the projects you've done like the one that you sent me that beautiful, like, just incredible piece. That piece was such a labor of love. It took me so long. Yeah, I can tell you about the pieces that I've done. So I've done at least one religious art piece per semester, sometimes more. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. I've done ones on the same-sex marriage debate. I've done ones on quiet meditation and, like, how that's kind of a universal thing with a lot of religions. I've done saintly relics. And then my more recent piece, the one that you saw, which is one meter by three meters long. Oh my gosh! Uh, Hand embroidered tapestry. Yeah. Um, it was very. It's very big. Um, it's like rolled up onto my bed right now because it's just too big to store anywhere. Yeah. Um, and it was this insane project that I took on to my final graduate piece because mm-hmm. they have to be a really big thing. So the idea is it's like a combination of your three years of work in one thing. Yeah. And for me, that was just Catholic queer art. So I was like, I know exactly what I need to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a piece just looking at my personal journey of um, Catholic and queer activism from when I was in high school up until now, pretty much. Mm-hmm. But it was this really huge thing. And it spiraled out so much bigger than I thought. I thought I was going to do this tiny little detailed embroidery. My teacher's like, no, just keep adding things to it. You know, <laughs> it's your final piece. Go big. And I was like, well, you said go big. Yeah. So so three meters long here. <laughs> here it is on the wall. Um, and it was an insanely big project. Um, and it was really good, though, for, like, reflection on mm-hmm. where I started with Catholic queer things back in, you know, that classroom when I stood up to my teacher because that really was just such a turning point for me up until um, now doing a bit more queer activism things on campus and kind of realizing that I'm still doing the same stuff. I'm just a bit more confident and I have more people around me now than I did when I started. 
there's more people that I can talk to about this. Mm-hmm. And it was a really, really reflective and beautiful piece. So I'm really happy it was my graduate piece. I don't know what I would do if it wasn't made because I would always wanted to make something like that for a very, very long time. But they take so long those major pieces oh i can imagine especially so it's all hand embroidered like it's entirely hand embroidered oh my gosh i do um i embroider but like small patches and those take me forever i cannot imagine (laughs) wow like oof i went through so much fabric because some of it's applique Mm -hmm. so i had to like buy all these tiny little scraps and it's like i just need this just a little just for the angel's wing just like a tiny little piece of white silk or like i need a bit of wool for the teacher's suit and i just had to like go through my stash and find a tiny little piece that could do and then i you know went to like four different stalls to find (laughs) the ribbon that's the border which is this beautiful red and gold um almost like brocade woven ribbon that has this these crosses in it and i was like yes that's what i need red and gold with crosses perfect Mm-hmm. And I went to like three stalls to find enough because <laughs> I needed so many meters to go around the outside. Right. So it 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 was such a long undertaking. I I don't think it was the longest piece to make out of all the graduate pieces, but it was one of the biggest in terms of literal scale. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, one thing you mentioned in the paper you wrote that you sent me on it is how um women and non-binary artists have used embroidery as a sort of form of resistance. I did a lot of research into the origins of textile arts um, because textile has always been seen historically as a kind of, you know, women's art. Yes, yeah. And I do, I do a lot of historical research. So when I say historically, I'm talking like 13th century, you know, 10th century, really far back. Mm, mm-hmm. But that wasn't meant as a derogatory thing. It was more just that was people who were doing it. Um, but these women who were working on these textile artists, there was such a skill and a meaning behind what they were doing. Like some of the tapestries that they would make, they told these beautiful non-linear stories because it wasn't meant to be like a painting, which tells a very clear scene. It was meant to just be an expression of a story or a meaning told in textiles. Mm-hmm. And with textiles, you can often be a little bit freer because you're not, it's not seen as a high art form in the same way that painting is. Um, I have opinions on that, but that's by the by. <laughs> and so they, they weren't held to the expectation of portraying one scene perfectly. Right. You kind of make your own rules up. So you'd see like a tapestry scene of, say, like the story of Moses. And it might start with Moses on Mount Sinai which isn't where his story begins. Mm-hmm. And it wouldn't make sense to begin the story there, but artistically, they would just went, well, I think that's where the part of the story should be. I, I want that to be on to the left side, and mm-hmm. you know, because I want maybe the, the parting of the Red Sea in the middle, because aesthetically, that looks nice to be in the middle. So they put that in the middle, even though that's not really where it would go chronologically. Mm-hmm. So they kind of constructed their own rules and their own ways of reading mm-hmm. these art pieces and textiles. And as you go further through the centuries, you know, jumping ahead quite a bit in the 10th century, well, up until when you get to women's activism in the suffragette movement in the late Victorian period, they came back to textiles. They picked up textiles again. So you would see embroidered tapestry banners Mm. or applique, you know, banners and posters, essentially, that they'd be walking around with. Mm. At that point in time, you know, 
textiles did have a bit of a derogatory women's work kind of thing. At that point in time, it did have that connotation. Mm. So for them to pick it up and choose to use textiles for that work was very much an act of reclaiming it or as using it in the sense of activism. And you see that throughout, you know, from the women's suffragette movement, you see it up until, you know, 80s, you know, going through the various waves of feminism, you still see textile art being used. Yeah. But what we're seeing now, and by now I mean mm-hmm. actually now, present day, present day um, artworks, mm-hmm. is that a lot of queer artists are doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. They are picking up textile art. Um, like I saw this amazing piece in a local art gallery um, where the artist who was non-binary and was talking about their change of name had made name tags, like the little sewn on name tags that you put like in a school kid's outfit. And they made all of these name tags to show their name turns like transitions between trying different names to see what fit. And they'd like cut off pieces of their school uniform or their clothing or like embroidered little things or just made all of these tiny little textile pieces to show a queer narrative. Yeah. And it was amazing that we're seeing this because, you know, there is definitely some intersectionality, particularly in the college campus that I'm on. Um, where a lot of queer concepts and queer issues do intersect with feminist and women issues. Mm-hmm. You can definitely see that kind of thing. So it's it feels like a passing of the torch where women's textile arts are just expanding to become general queer textile arts. Yeah. And just no one no one's talking about it too much. But I love it when I noticed it, because my teacher even said, um, there's basically a textbook on it. It's mm-hmm. called The Subversive Stitch, which is the holy grail essentially of textile art but it was written in the 80s okay so it needs to be updated but my teacher pointed out that like you know queer art is basically the next evolution of this is what we're seeing at the moment yeah which is so freaking cool (laughs) oh my gosh i love that so with like back in the victorian era and with suffragettes it was like reclaiming it as like yeah this is women's work and it's awesome Mm. what's wrong with women's work and then now it's sort of becoming yes it's women's work and queer work like it's yes it doesn't have to be confined to one gender but also at the same time like it belongs to people whose identities and artistic forms are considered lesser yeah well, especially because it's textile art, because as I mentioned, textile art wasn't always, but during a certain period of time, textile art came to be devalued and it wasn't right. seen as art per se. It was mm-hmm. what's known as decorative arts, which is things like ceramics, metalworks, things that you don't consider to be what you'd find in an art gallery. Sure. And so there was a linkage between women who were devalued in society and textile arts that were also devalued. And then when you bring that to queer people and other minority groups who are then reclaiming this art form that has historically been undervalued. Yeah. I mean, it's just the perfect linkage to talk about minority groups who feel underrepresented and undervalued in society. It's the perfect medium. Yeah. Also, it's just freaking beautiful. Mm -hmm. Like there's nothing more beautiful than this trend of like cross stitch where people make beautiful delicate cross stitch that like say sweary things in them or something like that yeah like fuck the patriarchy or whatever with gorgeous flowers all around exactly it also reminds me of um most people even if you don't have the money to like buy canvas and paint you might have scraps of fabric lying around um Mm. it reminds me of um 
the quilts of um, enslaved persons in the U.S. who would make gorgeous quilts that would tell stories and like pass on Mm -hmm. um, sort of family history to the next generation. They weren't able to write, but they could convey their stories in textile. I love it so much. I love textile a lot. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, me too. Um, I don't know nearly as much about it as you do. I'm more of a sort of like... (laughs) on the outside looking in like this is so cool I'll try it out a little bit the thing is I'm not even predominantly a textile artist I'm actually a digital Uh, artist oh my gosh Uh uh-huh I became a textile artist in my last two years because I took up sewing recently Mm. like I've only properly really gotten into sewing the past like year year and a half Mm -hmm. and so I've somehow you know become super fascinated in this like subculture of textiles art that no one talks about that I can find out and it's not even my main medium it's not what I've put all my time and money into it's just this little hobby that I've started that I'm suddenly obsessed with yeah well I mean it's so cool that you now have both of those mediums where one is Mm. digital it's you know not as tangible and then you have this textile that is very physical yeah you're kind of like breaking the binaries there where you're like I'll do both that is very much my vibe (laughs) what do you mean I have to choose you can't make me choose (laughs) exactly but yeah um I would love to hear more um, just of your thoughts. Um, Like in your email, you listed out so many cool things like that you've studied and are able to talk about. (laughs) I think maybe going from the subversiveness of textiles into rebellion through historical religious art could be a good tie in. That's my specialty. If textile art is, is what I do as like an artist, what I do as an art historian is that uh-huh. religious art and rebellion and the rules about it mostly in the renaissance period because that's when you start getting rules about that stuff because ah. there wasn't always these strict rules about how to depict religious figures and things like that mm-hmm. to set the scene in catholic art uh-huh. there was a whole debate back and forth and back and forth for centuries about whether or not you were even allowed to make it oh because some people thought it was blasphemous to depict religious figures because, you know, of that whole story in the Bible about Moses and the golden calf. Right. They were worried that if they depicted a religious figure, it would be like that, that you'd be worshipping the depiction and not the actual person. Mm-hmm. And so back and forth and back and forth for like four centuries, people are arguing, can we even depict these people? And eventually you get to a little bit before the Renaissance, and people go, damn it, we just like painting, so we're going to do it. We really like this art. (laughs) Yeah. We're making a stance. We're going to do it. Mm -hmm. And then you get the Renaissance period, and they just can't stop making religious art. (laughs) They cannot stop doing it. It's all they do. Mm -hmm. Because art was expensive. It was really expensive. The materials were expensive, Mm -hmm. and you had to pay for someone's time, and it took a really long time. So the only way you got art was if you were someone really wealthy. And Mm -hmm. most of the time, that was the Catholic Church or some patron of the Catholic Church. Yeah. Because you also had that whole thing of paying for your sins. So people (laughs) sometimes would pay for their sins by commissioning art. And then like gifting it to the church. Exactly. Oh, those indulgences. (laughs) Ooh, I have stories about that. Certain artists had opinions on people who did that. <laughs> um, but you, you would have um, all, all these artists making amazing work, um, but with bad intentions, essentially, or where the intention wasn't devotion, but to show off how wealthy you were. Like there's paintings where 
there's like big political figures uh-huh. in the background worshiping the Holy Family, like depictions of you know the three wise men visiting the Holy Family, and they'll be just isn't that isn't that our Prime Minister there? Yep, yeah, he is <laughs> because he commissioned the painting and he paid for himself to be put in it. That's amazing. I I don't even know where you want me to stop because I wrote like notes on like the three main artists that I study, which is Da Vinci, Caravaggio, and Michelangelo, are like the three big artists that I devote my time to. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michelangelo being my specialty because I love him so much. Now, at least two of those three are queer. Is Caravaggio also queer? <laughs> <laughs> Caravaggio is a mystery. We Okay. If he was anything, he would be the epitome of the disaster bisexual. Hell yeah. <laughs> um, but we don't actually know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, we just know that he was very chaotic. Um, he also literally killed a guy. Oh, okay. <laughs> he, he he killed someone um, and was sent away for it, but then Rome pardoned him literally because his paintings were so good that Rome was upset <laughs> that he couldn't paint for them anymore. And he made this masterpiece and he was like, hey, if I give you this, will you take me back? Yeah. And they're like, we've had to ban half the paintings you made because you keep doing anti-religious stuff, like <laughs> putting prostitutes in them. Oh, or boy. using prostitutes as the image of the Virgin Mary. He did that mm. a lot, mm-hmm. um, which they didn't like because some of them recognized her. Well, that's on them. That is exactly on them. But I do think it's hilarious <laughs> that they rejected a painting of it the Virgin is. Mary because they recognized the prostitute he used as a reference. Yeah. That's amazing. Oh, my gosh. So that that was Caravaggio. Um amazing guy who is part of the reason we have so many rules he's technically not renaissance he's actually from the baroque period so he's a little bit later than the other two but i just love his energy of whenever he makes a painting that the church didn't like he would sell it for even more money than the church (laughs) would have given it to him because his paintings were so good they were they're amazing paintings Mm -hmm. um and so his patrons and his you know non-religious friends just ate them up and they bought all of them and they just remake a version that the church approved of because they had a lot of rules like if you were depicting a martyr you have to do it in a certain way that represented their story right um saint sebastian in particular broke that rule a lot because he was you know half naked tied to a pole with arrows shot in him and a lot of artists what took liberties with that depiction yeah. and we just have less and less arrows and less and less clothing <laughs> um, until the church was like you have to have like three arrows in it minimum it's not just an excuse to depict a young naked man a sexy dude <laughs> it, it's a martyrdom he has to be you know he has to be in pain and bleeding so Caravaggio is part of the reason we have so many rules he he pushed the boundaries yeah and these revelations that he put in there was so shocking to his time period that just half of his paintings aren't really shown anymore or, you know, was sold off to some rich patron. We we still have some. They're still around the place, but they're like the watered down version of what he wanted to paint. I love that he was so good at painting that they couldn't bear to get rid of him, even though he drove them up a wall. Is just such a great, <laughs> like, what a guy. Like, he's like, I know I'm too good for y'all to lose. Like... <laughs> That, that was his energy. That was what he was like. I mean, he probably was a terrible person. He he did kill a person, so he probably wasn't a very nice man, but like... An, in, a very fun one to learn about. I, I could read about him all day. Terrible human being, but he's an amazing artist. Very entertaining to read about. Yeah. <laughs> 
so that's that's Caravaggio. I also have Da Vinci. We pretty much know that he would have been queer. There's a lot of literature on that, far more than I need to go in depth, but it's not, you know, it's not a secret, essentially. Um, it's more the fact that we just don't want to. We actually had a conversation about it in my art history class mm-hmm. um, where we basically said that, look, we could call these people bisexual or gay and things, but they probably wouldn't have used that label themselves because it just wasn't a label at the time. Oh, for sure. But they're definitely queer. Mm-hmm. They they would have been. Right. Like trying to narrow it down does them an injustice because that's not their culture. Exactly. Yeah. Like we could. There's enough evidence, particularly on Michelangelo. There's a lot of evidence that yeah. if we wanted to be as specific as their romantic and sexual orientation, we could put a pin on it. But would they have wanted us to do that? Probably not. Right. That yeah. being said, we know Da Vinci loved men. In fact, it's actually believed that The Last Supper depicts his lover as Jesus. Oh. It's a popular theory that that's who the model was. Oh. Um, I actually love that painting. Mm-hmm. Um well, it, it's a little bit overdone because he has other paintings that I think are better. But yeah. The Last Supper in particular, that Last Supper, the reason why it's special isn't just because it's, you know, 13 people on one side of the table and no one on the other side of the table. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. That was a very revolutionary thing at the time, too. They never thought to do that. Iconic. <laughs> they, they used to be round tables at, you know, very weird bird's eye kind of angles. They hadn't figured out linear perspective yet, so they didn't know how to make it look realistic, but they were trying. Right. But the other reason that that painting is special, which is the personal reason I love it, is because of Judas. Because Judas is in those paintings. If you look at historical images of the Last Supper, Judas is always in there. But he's usually like off to the side, or he's dressed in black, or he's not looking at Jesus or missing a halo. There's something that makes it really, really clear which one's Judas? Like, that's the bad guy. You can point to him. Right. But in this painting, it's not obvious. In fact, the there's only two ways you can tell which one he is. It's that, you know how they're all very linear? They're all, you know, pretty much standing next to each other? Yeah. His head is slightly lower than everyone else's. Oh. That's how you can tell. Huh. And the other way you can tell is that in his hand, he's holding the bag. And it's believed that that's meant to be the bag with the 13 pieces of silver. Right. But that's mm-hmm. the only way you can tell. You can't pick it out by any other way. Mm-hmm. And I always thought that was amazing depiction because Judas was one of the disciples. He was there yes. with everyone else. Mm-hmm. And I have a little soft spot for Judas as a figure. I think he's fascinating. But I loved that depiction that he wasn't a terrible person, that he wasn't, you know, this irredeemable evil person but someone that really loved jesus and loved the cause that they were a part of Mm. but also was struggling a lot and didn't know how to reconcile with that and the fact that he was just called to do this terrible thing Mm -hmm. but he didn't have any choice in that matter and so this depiction part of the reason that it was so revolutionary was it showed that it showed judas as a disciple which was just not a thing that was done and because it was da vinci it went over fine and everyone loved it (laughs) Caravaggio had done it, probably would have got chucked out. <laughs> uh, they'd be like, oh, not again. Exactly. Not again. <laughs> I love that, though. That's, and oh my God, I feel like it's such a queer mood to have a soft spot for Judas. Like, I think it definitely is the underdog, the edgy yeah. one. And, and just the vilified one, like you're saying that, like, mm. 
he was just one of them. Like, when Jesus says, like, one of you will betray me, it's not like they all turn immediately, like, Judas, we know it's you. Like, mm. they didn't know. Like, he was he was one of them. Yeah, I, I've always loved it. I actually, especially the musical Jesus Christ Superstar, it's a small tangent, but I was in my high school production of Jesus Christ Superstar. I, I was a theater kid back in the day, and... I loved it. And part of the reason I did was Judas is the protagonist. He's the protagonist of that story. It's his perspective. And his whole theme throughout the show is just, we're headed towards a dark path and I'm scared, but I want you to listen to me because I'm trying to fix it, but I don't know what to do. Uh But but, But it wasn't an evil path. He was just scared and confused and didn't know what to do about the whole situation. And I think that's so beautiful, but not talked about enough. Mm hmm so that's da vinci do you want to talk a little about michelangelo (laughs) michelangelo is my favorite by far he is the reason i study art history in the first place he is just an incredible person um he started Mm -hmm. art really really young like by the time he was you know 21 he already made the pieta and he was already an established artist in rome and in florence which is just incredible that someone that young was making these masterpieces that we still look at like 500 years later Mm -hmm. but what i especially love about his story is that he was a figure of a lot of personal conflict with religion not because he was queer although also was queer but because of the political and cultural thing at the time with religion um because he was around in you know mostly active 1490s 1520s around that time period um, and that was in the time when science was just starting to be a real thing in Italy. Mm. And with that came a lot of new philosophies and new ideas, like studying anatomy, which was banned. You weren't allowed to study anatomy. Oh. Da Vinci did and Michelangelo did, but you could be excommunicated. Oh, my gosh. Because it meant studying dead bodies. Oh. So you had to make a choice with your commitment to studying science and studying art or your commitment to your religion. Yeah. If you were caught, of course, a lot of these people weren't caught mm-hmm. or they were pardoned. Um, but it was a real struggle for a lot of them. And Michelangelo in particular struggled because he was called to science and anatomy and he loved to study it, but he's also a deeply religious person. Mm-hmm. And he wrote a lot about it, about how he felt this inner turmoil and this inner conflict. And you can see it in the Sistine Chapel ceiling. And I think that's amazing. If you... That, that entire building, that entire room, essentially, I've been there and seen it, and it's amazing, is full of these tiny little references to this conflict he was having. Um, and one of the most famous ones is actually in the creation of man, and no one notices it. If you think about the creation of man, which is that famous one, you know, Adam reaches out to God, yeah. and their fingers touch. Well, they don't touch, but they almost touch. Mm-hmm. That piece has a hidden reference in it. Um, and... The context is kind of important because at the time, Michelangelo is not a painter. He's a sculptor. Oh. So he didn't want to be painting. He really didn't want to do painting because he's like, I'm a sculptor and a poet. His most famous thing is this painting, but he never considered himself a painter. Wow. Um, but the Pope at the time, um, Pope Julius II, was like, well, I want you to make this masterpiece for me. So get on that letter and paint the ceiling. <laughs> and Michelangelo was not happy about it. But as he was reconciling this stuff, he you know, he, he put a lot of angst about that in his painting, which I'll get to in a second. But in the creation of Adam, if you look behind God, 
there's this pink shape behind him. Mm-hmm. The lid of that's actually a brain. Mm. But the thing is that no one at that time period would have recognized it as being a brain because they didn't know what a brain looked like because anatomy was forbidden. Wow. Yeah. So he put this in there knowing that no one would know what it meant. Mm. But it's more than that. There's two layers of meaning to it. Because not only is he putting science into the creation of man, right. he's also implying that God is the creation of man's thoughts, of man's mind. Oh my gosh. And there's different interpretations. Some people think he's just saying that we should be allowed to study science. Some people think he's going full-on anti-religious, saying God doesn't exist, which, coming from Michelangelo, is not an accurate interpretation. He was a deeply religious person. Yes. But a more accurate interpretation could be that he was conflicted with the version of God that was being put forth at the time. Mm. And that version, he thought, was created in their mind and in the mind of the Pope at the time because he really didn't get along with that Pope. Mm. In fact, there's actually um, behind where the Pope's chair sits, he painted the gates of hell. Right. And I, I, rem- I have heard that before. <laughs> Just roasting him. <laughs> There's also an image of the guy that commissioned it with donkey's ears and an ass biting his dick off. (laughs) There's Michelangelo himself, like, flayed alive. Like, Michelangelo flayed himself and put it in there. His image is in the painting. This dude. Because he's like, look, I really didn't want to do this. (laughs) I did not want to do this. Um, But more than that, there's also a literal depiction of Adam and Steve. Because Michelangelo... Cannot paint women for shit. He really can't. Right, right. (laughs) I've seen the memes of that. (laughs) I'm sorry, but it just, that's that's Adam and Steve. He really did paint Adam and Steve. (laughs) And there is no less than three uh, same-sex male couples kissing or embracing on the ceiling as well. They're hidden, but they're in there. Oh my gosh. So he really didn't want to paint this at all. But he just went all out and said, you know what, if I have to paint this, I'm going to paint it my way. Yeah. And he put all of this layers of meaning that no one realized because it was, you know, all the way on the ceiling and no one could get up there. Right. <laughs> and so just no, no one knew wow. about it. No one knew about it for yeah. hundreds of years until they went up there for restorations and were suddenly like, um, <laughs> what? <laughs> What's this? That's amazing. I mean, he's also just generally, you know, pretty much a queer icon he definitely had male lovers we found the letters between them and they are not platonic in the slightest <laughs> they, oh yeah th- those aren't platonic letters it's not just you know bros being hoes and friends and things mm-hmm. no uh, it is believed that he did also have a female lover as well though okay so he had the passion that makes him honorary if nothing else yeah <laughs> He was willing to roast people in his art. He was, including himself. Yes. And I love him for that. Yes. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. And just, I love that idea of the brain shape behind God and like that, like God creates humans who then sort of recreate God Mm. in our attempts to interpret and understand something so beyond our understanding. Just. It's amazing. That, that time period was full of that because there was a lot of conflict artistically and with the church. Yeah. Because that at that point, you're getting close to the Reformation. You're getting right. close to Lutheranism. And these things were bubbling under the surface before they actually happened. Right. Um, 
Oh my gosh. This has been such a delight. Yeah, I've had a great time. Thank you so much for just sharing your incredible art knowledge and some of your story. And the way I normally wrap these up is to invite you if you have like one last like word of advice or encouragement for trans folks that you'd like to share to feel free to. I guess I would say remember the narrative that God made you who you are and your transness and your queerness is part of that and that is beautiful. But also to find the power in your queerness and the rebellion in your love. You can fight with your love and your queer love and your queerness can be a form of activism in itself and just your existence as a queer person can be a form of activism and I think that's incredibly powerful so for anyone who is trans and queer and religious and struggles with that dichotomy the way that I did remember that there's such a power to just your existence and I hope that you can find that power the way that I did. you had as much fun as I did learning about art with Neville, you'll be excited to know that this wasn't actually our full conversation. There's a good 20 minutes I decided to cut out and save for its own episode in the future. In that extra bit, Neville and I talked about Caravaggio's model, who was a sex worker, and how the church's reaction to that connects to overall views around sexuality and purity as well as how the depiction of Jesus' dad, Joseph, and even how those ugly, man-like Renaissance babies also relate to ideas of sexuality, purity, and sin. It is fascinating stuff, and it can be linked to conversations today around sexuality, too. So stay tuned for that. I think I'll probably publish it for the halfway episode from May. Thank you to everyone who listened in or read along to this episode. If you are able please share this episode with someone you think would also love to learn about queer faith and art. Or rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Those are the two best ways you can support Blessed Are the Binary Breakers and keep it going. If you have any suggestions or questions for me, reach out to me at queerlychristian36 at gmail.com. Alright, that's enough for today. Please, Be good to yourself, be good to others, and go break some binaries and be a blessing to the world with your life.